Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Chris Crane is back for a new episode with special guest Adam Stetner, founder and CEO of Fund Canna. Adam joins us this week for a conversation that builds upon Chris's Forbes column. Bet you've heard this one before. Now is the time to invest in cannabis. To discuss the state of the cannabis industry, capital markets, and why he's focused on making investments in legal cannabis at this time. This episode marks the beginning of a fun new variation of the Green Rush podcast, which will run each time Chris publishes a column in Forbes. In these shows, Chris will welcome a guest, typically someone who is quoted in the column, to further discuss and flesh out the narrative. If you're interested in learning more about Fund Canna and the Cannabis Capital Markets, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Adam and Fund Canna on LinkedIn and Twitter. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Adam Stetner of Fund Canna. As you heard in the intro, we're starting a bit of a new format here for the Green Rush podcast, which we're going to run each time I publish a column in Forbes, uh, something that I've been doing now for uh, about six or so years. Um, and uh, in these in these new shows, I'm going to bring on a guest, uh, generally somebody who's quoted in the column, uh, to further discuss and flesh out the column's narrative. And this week, we're here to talk about a column that went live last week. It was called, Bet You've Heard This One Before, Now Is The Time To Invest In Cannabis. So if you haven't read it yet, maybe pause this for a moment, Google it, read the column, won't take you very long. And uh, and then you can uh, come back here for uh, a discussion about it. And uh, in this in this article, uh, we featured a quote from Adam Stetner of Fund Canna about why his company is making debt investments into the cannabis industry at a time when many companies in the industry are struggling. So I brought Adam onto the episode to discuss the state of the cannabis industry, cannabis capital markets, and why he's focused on making investments in the industry. So welcome, Adam. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Adam, I know you're you're not new to the Green Rush podcast, and if anyone hasn't listened to your prior episode, you should definitely go ahead and, and do it. Fun Canada is an amazing company doing some really important work in the space right now. Uh, but for those who aren't familiar with you or haven't listened to your prior episode here, and start us out. Give us a little bit of an overview of Fun Canada and your approach to investment in the cannabis industry. Thank you. So, uh, first, I think important that that listeners understand. Uh, myself and most of my team here have a background in providing capital to either underserved or underbanked markets in both consumer and commercial. So uh, started lending in consumer to student loan uh, borrowers and did that for quite a while uh, and did 14 billion in student loans. And then Followed that with lending into small business, where uh, I did uh, over three billion to a hundred thousand uh, clients, small businesses, and and what we do at Fund Canna, we started the business in 2021, 
And what I saw was a lack of flexible working capital for the space. So the the cannabis industry is underbanked. And by that, I mean roughly 5% of American banks will bank cannabis. But by banking cannabis, they're really just taking depositors. They're not lending to cannabis. Now, outside of cannabis, banks will only lend to business at a rate of about 20 to 25%. So even in traditional business, banks underserve their constituents. They do an amazing job at what they do, but they're very tight and they have a very specific box. So Fun Canna serves for cannabis. Fun Canna serves to fill the need of the industry for flexible working capital. We do that in the form of vendor finance and uh, and general funding needs, whether it's to fuel growth or projects or finish construction, uh, acquire uh, distressed assets, you name it. And we want to be a financing partner to the industry. That's terrific. And I mean, at, at a time like this in particular, uh, I mean, you talk about when you first take a look at this, that the industry was underbanked. And um, I think it's, you know, it's only gotten worse over the last couple of years. So it is uh, it is great that you guys exist and um, that, you know, there's sources like Funcana that companies can turn to for much needed capital in, in you know, pretty dry times. Um, you know, and speaking of which, Turning to the to, to some of the stuff in the column here, uh, you know the cannabis capital markets right now are in a pretty dire place, right? Companies are struggling with lack of access to capital, with price compression. There's been no relief on banking or 280e. Public companies are seeing their lowest stock prices ever. Uh, many of them are like one tenth of where they were just just two years ago. So. Uh, it, what is your overall take on the state of the cannabis capital markets and the cannabis industry today, high level? So I'll, I'll start with the cannabis industry, and then we can speak to, to capital markets. But cannabis industry, there's no doubt it, it's um, it's a struggle. Um, and as they say, that struggle is real. Uh, a lot of that struggle is a result of... Uh, Poor planning on the part of legislators, not necessarily mm-hmm. operators. And by, by that, I mean there's a disparity within supply chain, licenses being granted uh, disproportionately throughout the supply chain, which creates either glut of product um, or problematic movement of product through the supply chain. Um, and then you mentioned 280. Taxation is a problem. Enforcement against the illicit market or the legacy market um, is another issue. You know, certain markets are worse than others, but if we use California as kind of a bellwether given its size and its tenure, um, 75% of the California market is illegal. Only 25% of sales uh, in California are legal sales. And very little enforcement against the 75%, which is mind-boggling because that 75% is not paying taxes or creating revenue for the state. Um, And yet they enforce the law against the 25% that are compliant. Um, And by enforcing the law, I mean um, taxation and following the rule book and lab testing and all the other things, all of which compounds the cost for those legal operators and drives down the prices 
the illicit market drives down the prices that the legal market can charge. So they have costs going up at a time where prices are coming down. Other states deal with the same thing. So those are very real issues, but I think all of them can be addressed and will be addressed over time. The question is just when. It's not if. The, the, these things will be addressed because you need a normalized market. Anytime there's a new market, um, and this is a vice market like tobacco, alcohol, and so many others, um, it takes a little bit longer for people to figure it out. The federal uh, prohibition creates more disparity between states, and so every state acts like its own silo. Um, and you, you're lacking interstate commerce and marketing. That is why the cannabis industry is in the position it's in. It would make sense, and that's why I began with the state of the industry. Having said that, you've got amazing business people, very strong operators, and this industry is not going away. The demand for product is the strongest it's ever been. Normalization and acceptance of the product is the most widespread it's ever been. Um, universally, almost universally, uh, population is voting for more of this. And that shows that um, the tide has already turned. And now it's just a matter of regulation catching up to the demand and what the voters want. And so I think we're in this state of transition, and it, there's no doubt it's painful. As a result of that, the people that are controlling the capital markets and the investors that have been waiting for this normalization, they, they go through uh, waves where they lose patience. And it, the, that question of when is exhausting. It's exhausting for us <laughs> inside the industry, uh, but it's also exhausting for the investor that has had money in and is not seeing the yield. And as such, you have more people selling than people that are willing to buy. You get stock price compression, just like we have price compression within the market. So, um, and then what, what happens is equity dries up. So people that are willing to invest into the market, they see stocks down off 90% using your, your price uh, example. Um, and they've already invested. And so the follow-up rounds are all now down rounds. They're down mm -hmm. on the prior investment. And how much more money do they want to throw in before they see some movement? Uh, in legislation or pricing or performance of the assets they've invested in, which um, that it really explains both what we see within the industry and then what we see in the form of uh, capital markets. Yeah, I mean, these are great points. I think you, know, you talk about down rounds and you talk about folks who came in you know, earlier who you know, have, have seen major losses I, this is kind of the story of the public markets, right? I mean, all of these companies went public five-ish years ago um, mm -hmm. because there was no capital, there was no access to capital in the United States. And the, you know, the sort of the Canadian retail investors through the, you know, the, the, the CSC, the Canadian Securities Exchange was like, hey, come up here. And we, you know, this was a whole new untapped source of money where, you know, all of these companies went public when I think the reality is none of these are, maybe not none, but the vast majority are not really in a place where they would go public 
uh, right, or the state of their business size, right, where they would be public companies in a normal industry, they went public because they kind of didn't have a choice. And now the, you know, the CSC, those investors, I mean, when you, when you were talking about, you know, folks came in based on promises of where the stocks were going to go, and now it's all come way down, right? I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about what happened in the CSE. They're now tapped out, right? And so all these companies in our public and trading on an exchange with basically no volume, um, right? Basically no trading volume um, and no investors there to, to bail them out. You know, how do, how, how do the public companies get through this, right? Does it need to, do we need uplisting? Do they need to be able to go to the TSX or to one of the US exchanges? Do they need to think about going private? Do they just need to wait this out? Like what's your outlook on the future of, you know, 90 plus percent of the public cannabis companies? I, I, I look, I am not an expert in um, each individual public cannabis company. I, 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 Read. Sure. Uh, no, we're uh, talking macro here. Not, correct, I'm not asking correct. you to comment so, on any company so, in particular. Right. So what I would say uh, is, and I'm certainly not giving investment advice, but what I'd say is there, there has to be at some point, and every young market has it, every troubled market has it, there, there has to be some kind of consolidation. And whether that's in the form of some of these going away or some of them merging, um, the... Um, there isn't a near-term fix for businesses that are losing tens of millions of dollars per quarter that have a liquidity constraint and the additional burden of regulatory oversight, not just because of cannabis, but because of being a publicly listed entity. Right. Um, and, and so it, it's a very big burden. Um, and it's not necessarily the fault of the operators running these businesses. The, the promise and the belief was that, um, yes, taxation is very high now. And yes, the illicit market is running wild now. But as we move legalization through, these things are going to normalize, which will create interstate commerce and, um, and the ability to pay a normalized tax rate. You've got You've got companies in cannabis where normal companies have tax rates in the very, very low double digit range. You've got tax rates that are in some cases exceed 70% yeah. in cannabis, which doesn't leave a lot of money to operate your business. Um, with, with 280E, and I'm sure everybody has heard this ad nauseum at this point, but 280E for anyone that doesn't know, basically says that if you're running a business, even if it is deemed illegal at the federal level, you must pay taxes on all of your revenue. Well, if you're running an illegal business, illegal in the eyes of the Fed, um, they do not allow you to write off the costs associated with generating that revenue. So you pay taxes as if everybody else is paying taxes in the same way. However, they're able to offset revenue by their costs, costs of goods sold and everything else. In cannabis, you're not able to do that. And therefore, uh, you pay full burden with no offsetting uh, for your expenses. And so there's it, this was not supposed to be the way it went. Now, as you said, we're five years in and the, there is a very heavy tax burden. In many cases, we have hundreds of millions of dollars owed by the 10 largest public companies, hundreds of millions. Right. Of, um, 
And uh, and they just don't have the liquidity for that uh, because it's an it's an abnormal tax burden. So there are a lot of things that need to change. And I, I where we go from here, I, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is demand remains very strong and um, we need to fix a couple of things. And they're very clear. What we need to fix is very clear. We need interstate commerce. Uh, we need to be able to move. You can't. If you manufacture, you grow in California and you can't budge from California, pick a state, wherever you are, whatever you do in that state, you are stuck within those borders. Uh, there isn't another industry that operates that way. Uh, you, there is no economy to scale. And we need that. We need the ability to write off our cost of goods. We need enforcement against the illicit market because it's it's so much easier to buy a product that is 30 cents on the dollar that is deemed to be the same. However, it's not lab tested. You don't know the source. You don't know if it's pure, clean, free of pathogens, et cetera. But people will pay 30 cents on the dollar if they can get away with it. So we need banking. We need uh, fair taxation. We need interstate commerce. We need the ability to market. Um, and if we have those things, I think you'll see the vast majority of these companies not only pull through, but be wildly successful. Yeah. So, you know, you had some things that actually get right to my next question, which is, you know, how much of the current downward trend, and then I do want to get back to the the optimism, right? Because the whole point of this column is that it's a really good time to put capital to work in the space. Yes. Um, but I think to 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 understand why we got to got to spend a little bit of time understanding where we are now. Um, right. And then we can, you know, we can look at the blue sky ahead. Um, you know, how much how much of the current downward trend do you attribute to market conditions like you talked about the, the price you know price compression in particular being a big one lack of interstate commerce right um although i guess that's not so much market conditions you know versus uh regulatory factors right things like that are outside of the industry's control right the inability to pass congress to pass banking or 280e reform right the lack of interstate commerce right how much do you attribute attribute to these these regulatory legal factors that aren't within the, within the industry's control versus those that that are right the 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 you know the, the price compression and, and and shrinking margins. So, well, some of some of the the things you reference, like uh, uh, price compression and industry conditions, are a function of the illicit market not being enforced by the lawmakers and regulators that are also not doing anything on the other side. So it's like uh, new regulators is they're like deers, they're, they're deer in headlights. They, they don't know what to do. So they're doing nothing. And, um, and that's now inaction is never the answer. Uh, and so I mean, you're, you're speaking right about New York here, right? Uh, well, so, <laughs> well, California, California is a California big one as well. But, but New York is a great example. It's like you think they're give or take and my numbers might be off a little bit, but you've got 1900 illegal storefronts selling cannabis in five bureaus and like four that are illegal. And right. and when they catch uh, an illegal storefront, it's a $200 fine. Um, and then they open up again after they pay the fine. So I think if regulators were to address that, you'd see the legal market, it would flourish. Well, the you'd also need you'd also need more than four stores, to be fair. Well, correct, correct. But but that's the idea. The idea was they promised that they would open more. And this that's is right. what I mean by deer and headlight. 
They're frozen on enforcement on the illicit market, and they're frozen on expediting and removing the hurdles and the barriers and the red tape to get the legal operators um, what they need so that they can get their doors open. There's a lot of investment being made and it continues to be made in this space. So much of it, though, is tied up because of inaction. And I think that it's kind of like the wheels just need to be greased so that they can turn again. And that's, again, I, I point lawmakers, regulators, you know, uh, whatever label you want to put at, at the state and the federal level, there's a lot that can be done, a lot. And it's not about partisan politics. It's just, it's just business. Um, it's good business and government. We need to just these. And by the way, I do believe this will happen. It's just a question of when. So you talk about optimism. I am very optimistic that things will improve. Um, and it's just a function of when. And it's also the, the biggest problem. Usually when you have an issue, the, the biggest thing you want to do is identify what that issue is. The great news for this industry is, I think universally, a lot of what we're talking about, I may not be covering it all, of course, but, but a, lot, a lot of what we're talking about here, Chris, these are the problems that need to be addressed. The good news is we know what to address. Um, and, and that we also know what would move things along. It's now just a matter of getting our politicians to see it, understand it, and take some action. And when we do that, I think we'll really see things turn a corner um, rapidly, uh, turn a corner. No, I think it's right. And, and so thinking then about the future, um, let's stick with the public companies for a minute, and then we're going to expand, we'll expand from there. But do you see the lows in the stock market today as a sign that you know, now is a good time to buy stock in public companies? And, and if so, what should investors be looking for right, without giving actual investment advice here, but um, right, if you're looking at buying stock or, or, or uh, what do you think you, you should be looking for in determining which companies you should be buying into and which companies to avoid? Because I don't like, think when the rebound happens, right, you said it, not everybody's going to make it. Right. Uh, so how, what, what should we, we be looking for in terms of a, a, he a healthy company that is set up for longer term success? Well, so first, what I'll say, I will address that question. But before I do, I'd say the number one rule in an environment like this is diversification. Uh, you do not want concentration. You might love a single company, but you need diversification. So yeah, I, I think I that's, that's say, very wise. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, because you, you can't really cherry pick in an environment like this. Much better to have a broad based basket of so so that if you have a few that get much worse and you have a bunch that get much better, that balance is going to serve you very well. And I know it sounds so elementary, but but it's a it, even for myself, a very important reminder. I mean, I will extend it even further to say that even in our portfolio, I monitor concentration risk very closely because it, it to me, it's the biggest risk is concentration risk. And that could be geographic, it could be segment of the supply chain, or it could be individual clients. You want diversification in every capacity. So I would say if you're looking at public companies, diversify based on what those companies do geographically, where they're located, even if they're MSOs, they may be regional MSOs. They're so, all regional MSOs. Right. <laughs> That's right. 
So, so you want diversification in what they do, where they're located, and then a tenure management team and financials. And, um, and you, you want to look at all those things, but high level is okay if you're going to be broad in your investment. And so pick a number, let's just random and arbitrary. If you've got $20,000 to invest, um, I would spread that out over as many as you can, you know, minimally 10, um, but, but in my mind, right. But certainly no less uh, than five or six um, because the odds are we're going to lose 10 to 20% um, of what's out there. And so if that's the case, if you, if they're 10 and you only pick two, you may pick the two losers. Um, and, and you always have winners, losers, and then a few in between that don't do much by being diversified. You've got the greatest chance of a balanced portfolio that gets a rebound, but with stocks off 90%, it is a good time if you're willing to take risk, if, and that's a big if, but if you're willing to take risk, it's a great time to take a look and select a basket um, and give it a whirl. And I do think the odds are greater that you have some failure from here followed by a rebound. Um, and so if you have the tolerance in the stomach uh, to lose some money, the odds are you'll be rewarded um, thereafter. And, and the other thing I'll say is the industry is becoming much more creative with, uh, with how they adhere to the law, but still find a way. It, it really is amazing to watch this industry evolve. Um, some of the most thoughtful and creative operators I've seen in my 20 years of, uh, of lending or providing capital, um, it, outstanding group of operators. And it gives me tremendous faith. If if the amount of businesses that are operating and surviving in this kind of environment uh, exist as they do now, with just slight improvements to the environment, um, I really do think there's tremendous opportunity ahead of us. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's going to be hard for us to go much for much lower than uh, than 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 things are right now. And there are lots of reasons for 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 optimism. Um, you know, so let me get, let's go into that. I mean, you know, curious to talk about how optimistic you are about the future of the industry and you know the companies that survive the the current downturn, right, due to legal regulatory changes on the horizon. Um, you know, in the column, in the column that we're we're talking about here, right, I make the case that there is a lot of blue sky ahead that is also out of the control of the industry right much like many of the of the challenges that the industry faces today are issues like we identified right lack of access to banking 280e uh, you know interstate commerce right i mean all of these issues that are that are really yeah you know, yeah that not you know the the, the challenges with the, the with the, the illicit or the legacy markets um, right. All these are, are sort of regulatory and legal issues that are out of the largely out of the control of the industry. Now, we have great trade associations out there that have lobbyists and whatnot. But the reality is we're a drop in the bucket compared to what traditional industries are able to spend on these things. Um, but I, I would make the case and I, and I do that the opposite is also true. Right. We have a lot of states 
um, including large states, you know, large population states like Florida, Texas, and Ohio that have not legalized yet. New markets that are not open, right? They're, they're, those are medical. Texas is barely, yes. um, right? But these are not full legal markets yet, right? At some point, we're going to see major changes in federal law. Right. We'll see changes to banking and 280E. Eventually, we're going to see federal legalization. We may see descheduling sometime in the next year uh, Right, with the review that's going on in the Biden administration. So there are all of these things that are coming. Right, It's a matter of when, not if. Uh, right, yeah. All these things are going to happen at some point that are going to be or should be catalyst events for positive momentum and positive change in the movement, right? So much of these stocks, for example, are driven by whether or not Congress is going to pass banking rather than the business fundamentals of the companies themselves. So like, do you, in your mind, do you think that these changes are true game changers that are going to give a real shot in the arm to the industry? They're going to boost valuations and spur new investment in the space or, or you know, or am I being too, too optimistic here? No, I actually really appreciate the question um, and that self-reflection. I'm an anxious person, Chris, so I ask myself the same question all the time. Um, I agree with you uh, uh, all the way. Uh, I would love to disagree because I think it would make for a spirited conversation. Um, <laughs> sure. But but I, I agree with you. I think the fact that roughly half the country is still not recreational or adult use Um by itself is a tremendous opportunity. And then all the things you just said are, they're huge. And, and the, the market is just looking for a little bit of good news, right? How many times have we had safe banking pass the first leg of what's needed only to die uh, once it gets to Senate, right? And, and so I, I think it's seven now, uh, seven times, something ridiculous like this, that safe banking has passed in the house and then uh, died. I think it's five. I think it's five, but okay, yeah, all right. Gross. So uh, forgive me, right? I mean, I maybe I lost <laughs> down after four, but but um, but uh, so I think the markets are looking for just a little bit of good news, a little bit of momentum, a little bit of normalization to show that regulators and the public see the value, and once we start to see those signs. Momentum. Look, momentum is already building. It's you can't really go a month without a state passing something that is positive for this industry. So the the momentum is there. We're just on the inside and we don't feel it. What the markets looking from the outside in need to see is something that they can hang their hat on. So, like, I'm not a huge proponent for safe banking. Um, but I think we need it because I think it's a it's an arrow uh, that that the market will see. It's going to like a flaming arrow that's going to be shot into the sky like a flare to show, look what we did. Um, now, the reason I say it's not that big, we're we are if you want to be banked in the space, you're banked. Um, yes. So in terms of depository got, accounts, that's right. They're, 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 they're out there now. That's right. The days, so, the days of companies storing, you know, storing uh, yes. uh, tens of thousands of dollars of cash in a storage locker with a guy had a gun out front, right? Those are, that was 10 years ago, which is a good reminder of how far we've come. Correct. But you think about like, and, and this is another point, and I, I don't mean to, to cut you off here, but oh, please. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's also something that's an important reflection, particularly for those who have been, who have only been in the industry for two, three, four, five years, if you yeah, think exactly. about where we were 10, 11, 12 years ago, 
Correct. I mean, there were, I remember seeing stories on, I think, 60 Minutes or CNN, right, literally about the early days in Colorado after they'd first passed adult use, where you literally had people storing cash in storage lockers and hiring armed guards to guard it because they couldn't open a bank account, right? right. I remember, and it was only a, year, a couple of years before that, if that, that when dispensaries opened, part of their opening protocols was to have DEA raid training to, to, to train their employees on what to do if the DEA came in guns blazing, um, right, to shut down the store. I remember, you know, it was 2011 that we were dealing with civil asset forfeiture, like major civil asset forfeiture proceedings from U.S. attorneys throughout California and then a little bit in Colorado going after the landlords of, of, of state and locally licensed cannabis dispensaries. Yep. Those days now, I mean, to tell somebody who got in the industry of, uh, 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 within the last few years about DEA raid training or armed guards in front of storage lockers and ca- full of cash, and they'd look at you like you're absolutely crazy. And yet yeah. that wasn't that long ago. People were going to jail, Chris, uh, five, six, seven years ago for making deposits at the bank. Absolutely. That's right? absolutely so, right. So it, it, it again, we have come a long way. There's still a lot of pain. And so I, I view it why I entered the space, because I believe that this in 21, I, I'd been studying the space for a little bit prior. I really wanted to understand, but I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And and uh, in, in, in both a good way and just the disbelief of uh, how can this be? And just since 21, you think the cost of banking has come down tremendously over the last two years. The number of banks that bank the space has gone up by 45, 50% um, just in the last two years. You've got large banks that now bank this space. Um, and uh, and so, and you've and more credit unions and and neobanks and tech platforms and you name it, right? And so there is more and more momentum in all of these areas. Um, and all of that is great. And and then we are too far along with too many citizens voting for more of this for it to be ignored forever. And for that reason, I'm a believer in the future of the industry. And, and I entered this space. I left a lucrative business that I had founded prior that was servicing non-cannabis, traditional small and medium-sized businesses uh, with funding. Um, I left that because I saw the opportunity. I knew it would be tough for a few years, but I needed to understand what this industry was going through and I needed to go through it with them so that I could design the product and make sure that as as the industry emerges from the various things that we've talked about, um, that that we all fought through it together, uh, that the product that the financial products that were being designed, um, met the need and um, and that you knew the flow of how things worked beforehand. So you the, the it is amazing when when and I encourage everyone that's listening, if you ever have the opportunity to sit down with someone that was prosecuted for doing things that are now considered normal. Um, and you're it's not like you know you have to find a senior citizen to do that. You'll find someone in their 30s that spent time in prison for doing the very thing that you might be doing right now, totally above board and walking around, you know, in front of police telling them what you're doing and they smile. (laughs) Um, 
And but but you learn it will remind you how far we've come as an industry. Um, and I really do believe that that momentum will continue. It's just uh, it's it's been painful and I think it'll be painful for a bit longer. Uh, but there's no doubt momentum is is on our side. Yeah. And, and th- thank you for bringing up that up, too. I mean, I think you, we spent a lot of time talking about the business of cannabis and the industry. And, and look, it's important. It's, it's the Green Rush podcast is literally what we do on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been in this industry for 13 years now, which is quite scary. Um, but uh, <laughs> you think about it, especially because they talk about especially they talk about being in cannabis is like dog years. And I should be taken out and taken out back to shop <laughs> by now. Um, but uh there are still, we can't lose sight of the fact that there are still people sitting in cages yes. in prisons around the United States for engaging in the same behavior that those of us in the industry have licenses from state agencies to do. And yes, what they were doing at the time they were doing it wasn't legal, but it doesn't make it any less of an injustice that they're still sitting there. And I think right. the industry has probably not done nearly enough of, uh, you know, near, nearly as, 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 nearly enough to raise awareness around this, right? To support groups like Last Prisoner Project, like Normal, like Students well for Drug Policy, Weldon, Angelos, right? And yeah. um, his project, right? I mean, the folks that are that are working to get these folks home, it's really, really important. And we, we can't lose sight of that. And I can't, you know, I, I, I can't encourage folks to support these organizations that are doing that work on the ground enough. This isn't just about the business, um, but you know, if, if we're all out there doing well and making money, although you know, not, not a lot are actually doing that these days, um, but even you know, if we are, or if we're trying, right, we, we can't do it while folks are still rotting away in cages for engaging in the same behavior. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, but you know, moving back to the business, because that is what the show is about here, um, you know, we've talked about price compression, right? That is probably the biggest factor right now in uh, why, in terms of why these companies are hurting so badly. Um, and, you know, I argued in this piece that this was largely inevitable, right? Price, compre- price compression in general. And pricing traditionally has been propped up by the cost of doing business in the traditional or illicit markets. Um, and later, artificially inflated by limited competition through limited license states, right? States, states issuing only a small number of licenses to businesses. And as these markets open up and you have competition and these, you know, sort of oligopolistic uh, early medical markets start to, you know, start to open, um, pricing was always going to come down to a lower point. And that's, I think, you know, we're seeing that now. And look, when interstate commerce happens, you're probably going to see price compression even more, right? Because now competition is nationwide and you can build real economies of scale. So what do you think of the argument that the current downturn in some ways is probably good for the long-term health of the industry in that it's forcing companies to figure out how to run more efficient operations and to survive in pricing conditions that are, are and are increasingly going to become the new normal? Yeah. Well, um, look, it, it's tough, but but I think what it forces first everyone to take a, a look at the expense side um, and the business plan. But I just want to point out one thing that I think is very relevant to the business and the price compression, which is the again, I, I hate to harp on this, but I want everyone to put the pressure on the politicians and the regulators to think in a way that the industry needs, which is to say, you have thousands more growers licensed 
than you do retail outlets to sell the product. How on earth can we have a balance in price? Forget the illicit market for a moment. If there's no illicit market, how can you, and I'm, I'm making numbers up here, Chris, but how, for example, it's like if you had 1,000 automobile manufacturers and only 400 dealerships to sell these cars. Um, you, you'd have weight and you can't sell the cars anywhere else. You can only sell them in the state. Um, and so we have in California, I use California A because that's where I'm based, but B because it is the largest market. You've got thousand, thousands more growers licensed than you do retailers. Now, mm-hmm. I, I mean it. Um, and not to mention all the unlicensed growers. <laughs> correct. Well, correct. Correct. And, that, and, and that's why I, I continue to bring up uh, the legacy market. But, but if we just look at the legal market, which give or take three, three and a half billion dollars uh, of legal sales, you, you've got uh, the California Department of Cannabis Control. Why would they not license more retail and few, at the start? And fewer growers with the idea that that's just, it's like economics, it's not even 101. It's like economic zero. It's preschool level economics, supply and demand. You can't have an oversupply of anything and have a balanced economy. And so that's, that is a big part of what we're dealing with. Now, you've seen a lot of closures of cultivators and growers. The, as awful as that is, we needed it. And it's it's still happening, but you've seen roughly 20% of growers have closed. Um, mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, while terrible for the livelihood uh, of the people that were at those growers and their families, and I don't want to seem insensitive, um, the industry needs to right size itself and create a little bit of balance. Um, every industry goes through cycles like that. The unfortunate part here is we, we could have done a little bit better, but hindsight's 2020. So looking at where we are right now, we have more balance today than we did even a year ago. That is another blue sky item uh, as we look to move forward. And it, it will help a bit with price compression. You've seen where it was essentially uh, just a downward trend for a while over the last, let's call it through 23, you've seen some blips in pricing already in cannabis nationwide, where there've been some movement up, followed by movement down again and movement up. And that's in any financial market, that's considered consolidation, right? You have a downward movement, you consolidate at a new base. And then if the cards are played properly, you'll get a bounce off that level. And I am cautiously optimistic, but of the belief that we will see that come in the next year or so. And, and what, but, and what do you think about the, this argument though, and to come back to it, that, that, you know, the operators that are able to survive through this are going to be better positioned for the long term. And I mean, I think, I, I think that part of the issue that we've had here is so many of the companies, and I think this is particularly true for the MSOs, Right, who really built their businesses on in, in these limited license states where they didn't have to worry about operational efficiency. Um, and this is an argument I've been making for years, um, right? Because when you're one of 20 growers in a state, right, your margins are pretty good, right? Your prices are good, your margins are pretty good. And if you have a problem, right, you've got some extra money that you can throw at it or some bodies you can hire to fix it. 
when you're, you know, when you're selling, when you're selling pounds at, you know, a thousand dollars a pound instead of $3,500 a pound, you don't have that luxury. You've got to figure out how to be efficient. Um, so, you know, I mean, what, what do you think about this, you know, this argument that, that this current environment is going to force, you know, force companies to either figure out how to operate in an, if, in an efficient manner and become better operators into the future, or they're just not going to make it. Uh, well, look, I, I agree with that. I don't, I, I think, I think all of us, regardless of industry, right. If, if you're, uh, if you've been working for a while and you are responsible for either PL or employees, you're battle hardened. Nothing is easy uh, in life. It's worthwhile. It's just not easy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the harder life is, the more, um, the more experienced, uh, and talented uh, and battle-hardened you become, um, you know, like the concept of pressure makes diamonds. Um, I, I I do believe in that. And I think that this industry is creating a lot of uh, rare gemstones. I, I think that that those that come out the other side, if if you can, uh, not to quote, uh, you know, the, the theme for New York, right? But if you can make it at this time in this industry, you will thrive as we come out of uh, all these restrictive, prohibitive conditions. Um, and, and undoubtedly, it's going to happen. You cannot put this genie back in a bottle. It's, it's too big. And, and the voters nationwide, not only have they spoken, they continue to speak. Uh, and right. there's a lot of momentum there. And so things will improve. And the people that are making it now, you have companies, we talk about the MSOs, the fabric of this industry, there are a lot of mom and pop, there are a lot of uh, single unit operators, uh, maybe you know, three, four dispensary locations, small vertically integrated operations with, with grow and uh, um, retail. And um, they are going to be incredibly well positioned um, to, to do very well. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we've looked, we've, we've looked, we've underwritten nearly a thousand clients, um, in the call it give or take, we're just shy of two years now. Um, and I'm consistently impressed with what people are able to do given the market conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, it's very impressive. And if you see that now, what will we see? You don't need the entire Rubik's cube uh, to have every side uniform for this industry to thrive. We just need to keep turning the cube to get a couple of sides our way. Uh, because right now it's a jumbled mess and, and things are not all dark. They're not all gloom and doom. And you look at some of these financials, their companies, while individual markets year over year are down single digits, you've got plenty of companies that are gaining market share uh, without increasing their expense load. Um, I, I find that amazing. I'm, I'm consistently impressed by the people in this space. I, I appreciate that. Um, so in, in this column, you made the case that equity is typically the most expensive form of capital for companies to take on, uh, especially in this environment of, of record low evaluations, uh, which makes debt more attractive. Um, so can you expand a little bit on this right beyond your, your quote from the article and uh, and in particular and 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 maybe go into a little bit about how fund canna evaluates companies when making these types of debt invest uh, debt investments 
Sure. Well, first, what I'll say is we've been trained, all of us, our whole lives, that debt is bad. Now, I don't agree with that. I had once had a professor um, that asked the class, how many of you think uh, uh, debt is bad? And the entire class, of course, raised their hands. And she said, you all have an F. And then um, <laughs> went on to explain why. Debt is amazing when it's used properly. Debt is only bad when it's used irresponsibly. Um, and we, we had a great debate over this. But what I'll tell you, my experience, I've worked at public companies, I've worked at private, uh, private companies. Equity is incredibly expensive. The reason I say that is because once you bring equity on, you lose a piece of your business forever. Um, there is no way to get it back. Um, uh, and, and so, um, the, the goal here is for you to be successful and to build something of value. And if you do that, you're building that value and creating upside for someone else. Um, the nice thing, and that's permanent. So I think equity has its place. I don't, I don't, I want to make sure the the listeners don't view me as a hypocrite. I take equity on as well with the companies that I've started and I've started three, all of them I've brought equity in and all of them I've leveraged at every time. But my equity is always strategic. And by that, I mean, I want to bring money in from people or entities that I believe offer value beyond the money. And there's going to always be a time, another part of the strategy, there's going to be a time where you can't raise debt. And so maybe when you're first starting out, you can't borrow on an idea, but you can raise equity on an idea. You raise what you need. And then once you have an operating business, you leverage debt, period. You never want to use equity to fuel the ongoing operation of a business because debt can be paid back. And then the debt holder, uh, uh, or I should say the lender, goes away. And so it's kind of like the ultimate version, if you think of it like this, debt can be a lot less expensive because you only pay for the time that money is used and then they go away. They don't tell you how to run the business. They don't try to overthrow your management team where equity holders will often have an opinion and you have to report out to them. Um, and they're your partner for life. Uh, okay. Where debt is like the ultimate partner in the sense that they give you the tool you need to fuel your operation and your growth and pay your bills. And then you decide when they go away. Um, and so in that, in that regard, I, I think that equity is expensive for the reason I gave, but it has its place when it's strategic. Um, and then debt, again, when used properly, should be the tool that gets used to run operation, to fuel growth. And almost like a yo-yo, you draw down, you pay back. You draw down, you pay back. And when you're using it properly, that cost of capital becomes a line item in your financials. Um, and it, on the one hand, while it may reduce your margin, it's also fueling your top line because there's a lot you can do when you have that access to capital that you cannot otherwise do. Um, and, and so every industry needs access to debt. There isn't a single industry on the planet that doesn't leverage debt. Um, and, uh, and, and even companies that are flush with cash use debt. Google, Apple, Intel, you name it, the brand names that we all know. Companies that are sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars of cash will also borrow. Uh, because when it's used properly, it's an amazing tool. So 
Let's, I want to take this to the other side of this one, uh, the other side of this, this subject here, which is for the companies that are taking on debt, um, right? Rather than the investor, the investors uh, themselves, what should they look out for when evaluating debt deals, um, right? I mean, in particular, how do they how do they ensure that they that these deals don't become too large of a drain on their cash flow or their balance sheet, um, and how do they look out for predatory debt deals, which are pretty, unfortunately, pretty common in the cannabis industry, um, right? Because, you know, folks know this is an industry that's capital starved. And so that makes it ripe for, you know, bad actor, bad actors or, or folks that don't have these companies, you know, that, that, that aren't in it for the success of, 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 the, of the companies they're investing in, you know, particularly these, type, you know, going, like these, these, these so-called loan, loan to own debt deals, right? That can ultimately cripple a company and, 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 you know, find it in the hands of the, of the investors. So how do companies evaluate uh, and folks in the space uh, evaluate these deals to make sure that this is good debt, right? That's really going to help them grow and thrive as a company rather than uh, be preyed upon and taken advantage of. So I, I would say um, there people are often uh, hesitant to ask a lot of questions just in plain language. Forget the legalese of a contract. Forget a, just ask a lot of questions and then ask them to point out that provision within the document. Don't feel as if you've got to understand what you're reading in a um, uh, you know, arbitrarily selecting a number, a 30 page contract on capital. Ask, is there any trigger for conversion to equity? If they say no, can you point that out to me? Don't don't be afraid to ask the questions in plain language. It's a, the legalese is difficult for anyone to read. As I've said, I, lending for a couple of decades now, I find contracts to be uh, pretty onerous. Um, I, I don't like them myself. Uh, you need them, but you want to understand them. So ask, do research on the 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 people that run the the source of capital. Do research on the source of capital itself, the the company um, that you're taking money from, and then ask a lot of questions. Don't be shy. All of the things yeah. that you're wondering, just ask them out loud. And no one is going to pass on providing you capital because you're inquisitive, because you're curious and you want to protect yourself and understand how something works. If so, and if they if they do, that's a pretty big red flag, right? <laughs> it is a red flag. And if something seems vague look to nail it down, right? Ask the question. It seems like the way it's written, it could go either way. Can you explain to me how I'm protected here? The answer is sometimes you may not be protected. You just want to know your risk. That's the, the, the biggest problem with risk is when you don't know what the risk is. I'm a risk taker. I don't mind taking risk. I just want it to be calculated. I want to understand what my risk is. So I would encourage everyone that's listening do research and ask a ton of questions. Don't be shy. If you read an agreement and it's straightforward and you understand it, I'm not saying you have to ask questions, but there isn't an agreement I've read in my 30 plus years of business where I read the agreement and I don't have a single question. I always have a question. Yep. And you, uh, you probably need a good lawyer too, uh, right? Somebody who, uh, and, and, and this is actually something I've, I've come across with folks where it's not just, you don't just need a lawyer, right? You need a lawyer that actually understands these types of deals and these types of contracts. And I've, unfortunately, I've far, far too often seen, particularly with smaller business owners, 
right? They'll rely on you know their their you know attorney that's done that's worked with their family for many years, right? Uh, they may be a jack of all trades lawyer, or they may not be you know may not be familiar with uh, you know complex debt deals or securities right. law, um, and you know the, the attorneys in those cases they're trying to do their best for their client, but they're not they don't have the requisite training. So you know, make sure you've got an attorney that is familiar with these types of of contracts and these types of deals, especially if you're relatively new to it. The, the good um, news though, Chris, is there are a lot of law firms that are not only cannabis friendly, but have financial services experience. So right. they're both cannabis aware, cannabis friendly. They have a regulatory experience in cannabis and they've got a financial services arm. They're a lot like that in this space. Um, and then you also have accounting firms that are very familiar with cannabis and, um, and they're eager to assist. So I, I agree with you, um, but you can probably do, I would say 85, 90% of the work yourself, save yourself a lot of money, ask all the questions to get yourself comfortable. And then with that context, then approach the expert in protecting you. Because if you give it to them raw, you're gonna end up paying three, four times what you have to pay if you just ask the general questions that you've got, ask them of your source of capital yourself, rather than asking your attorney who is then going to charge you uh, exorbitant, <laughs> exorbitant <laughs> money to, to get the answer you can get yourself. Just That's great, yeah. Yeah, they, they have their place. There's no question. The attorneys have their place here and they're an excellent tool. They just also have to be used properly. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a terrific point, and uh, you know, I, I I think that's that's sage advice. Um, oftentimes, business people will put the business decisions in the hands of the attorneys, and I generally find that to be unwise, um, uh, right? Because look, the attorneys, their job is to identify the risk. And this is, an, I guess, this is another piece of advice that I would offer based on my own experience in this realm is um, the attorney's job is not to tell you do a deal or don't do a deal. And if they are, that's generally problematic. Um, the attorney's job is to, as you said, help you assess your risk and help you evaluate your risk. It's the business owner's decision then to decide what risk they're comfortable with. Um, and I, I've, I've definitely encountered way too many what I'd call you know deal killing lawyers, um, yeah. right? Who you know see risk and say you can't do this deal. And it's like, right. well, okay, tell me what the risk is, and I'll decide whether or not I'm comfortable doing the deal. That's exactly um, right. I, I often say that that the wrong lawyer is like a company's officer of business prevention. <laughs> uh, we, we all have business development uh, people in our minds, the uh, great salespeople. Um, the wrong attorney will be the attorney that it just kills deals. Uh, but, and, and I will say to, to attorneys, it's not uncommon for me to say, if I listen to everything you'd say, I can avoid all the risk by doing no business. That's right. Um, right. But that's not the, that's not what we're all trying to achieve. We have to just strike a balance. That's exactly right. Um, so look, we are running out of time here. So I want to give you one one final question um, that I think sort of tie this all up in a nice bow, um, which is, you know, if you were, and not asking you to, you know, actually give financial advice here, but if you were advising a friend, a client um, who were looking to get into this space, looking to take advantage of the, the all of the long-term upside that we've talked about that we see in this space and, and the reasons why, you know, we do think this is a good reason to, to put capital to work right now that, you know, in this climate, what would you tell them about 
how they should be how they should be investing their money and what can they do to help ensure that they're going to get the best return on their capital. Uh, it goes back to kind of uh, summing up a lot of what we've said, which is eyes and ears wide open. Don't look for confirmation bias. And by that, I mean, don't look for the picking out the facts while omitting other facts to try to prove or disprove a theory that you believe. Look at the broad base of information without trying to convince yourself that you're right. Let the data tell you what to do rather than your emotion. And then be diverse uh, in the way you approach the space. Now, that doesn't go for an operator in terms of how you run your business. There, it's great to have a specific skill set and to hone in on what you're great at. Uh, I never, as an operator myself, I don't try to do 100 things and do them well. But as an investor, my goal always is to be diversified and to just let the data speak for me. Um, and so uh, in terms of investment, my advice is diversification, um, keep an open mind and try to just seek out as much information and data as you can. And then with that data, make some decisions. And again, not investment advice, but um, I think you need to weigh out your tolerance for risk. There is no doubt risk remains in the industry, but I think that the reward or the potential for upside, this is a, a pretty good time to take some risk with the idea that the yield will likely be there in the long run. Very, very wise advice. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining me here today. Uh, thank you for your quote in the column and I uh, look forward to keeping the conversation going into the future. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Green Rush. A huge thanks to Adam Stetner, founder and CEO of FunCana, for joining us today. You can learn more about FunCana and the work they do over at fundcana.com. As always, thanks for listening. And if you want to chat with us, please reach out on Twitter at the, ha at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at, at the Green Dash Rush underscore podcast or just drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. Lastly, please subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one take, Shay. One take. Cannabis! Cannabis!